Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Let's pray as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 14. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that as we revere your word as that which you've given us and that which you've provided, um, we don't find ourselves falling foul of idolatry. We don't find ourselves in that place where we actually idolize your scripture. But we recognize that the scriptures are the revelation of who you are, are inspired by your spirit. And as we walk in your scriptures, as we walk in your word, we have relationship with you. And this is why Christ came, that we might have relationship with you, having been alienated from you, having been dead even though we lived. You sent your son, Heavenly Father, that we would be made alive unto you and be able to have relationship with you. And that's a living relationship because you're a living God. And we thank you because you've made it clear that your word is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is spirit and it's life. And as we hide your word in our hearts, it enables us not only to not sin against you, but also to rejoice in you, the God of our salvation. And so speak to our hearts today, Lord. Encourage, strengthen, and comfort us, Lord, we pray. Enlighten our understanding to know you better and to serve you more faithfully, Lord, to love you with all of our hearts. Thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed. God breathed it out through people. And Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor, that it's profitable for doctrine, for teaching what is right, and for reproof, for stopping what is wrong, and for correction, being able to determine the difference between the two and training in righteousness that is putting the truth into practice. And this was the mandate given to Timothy and to all, all of us as believers and particularly for those of us who are Christian leaders, who are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In both his letters to Timothy, Paul spoke on numerous occasions about sound doctrine, about holding the doctrine, keeping the doctrine, being sound in the faith. Not just in a general sense of, well, we believe in God and you know, continue to believe, but actually being consistent with God's revelation of himself. And so in the process of doing that, 
It means that as leaders, there are times when we need to be able to say, this is what's right, but also this is what's wrong. This is what's true and this is what's not. This is what's good practice and this is what's bad practice. And oh, today that more Christian leaders would shoulder that responsibility so that we could have greater clarity. And that's not saying that anyone has all the answers. And so those who teach must first be teachable. We're to receive the engrafted word of God with meekness. Because it is above us. All of us. And most definitely those of us who preach the word. We are under the word. We are submitted to the word. We do not judge the word, but the word judges us. And so, last week as I began to to share on the issue of prophecy... One of the things that I felt was absolutely necessary was to be able to clarify what prophecy isn't just as much as what prophecy is. So we said that prophecy we understand to be the telling forth of God's word or the foretelling of events based on God's word. The speaking out of God's heart and mind in the way of applying his word to a particular situation, circumstance, person, or problem. But there's also the predictive element, which is also based on God's word and is a response to God's word. We're dealing with matters that are, at best things we need to really give consideration to more than just a cosmetic skim through. You know, we don't read through First Corinthians 14 as, as if we do a psalm. And yet, at worst, we realize that there's often much confusion in the church today. Having taken some time to establish what prophecy is not and what it is in principle, we're going to take today to spend some time looking at the whys and wherefores of prophecy, as it were. The mechanics. How does the Apostle Paul state that prophecy is to work amongst God's people today? Let's read 1 Corinthians 14. And as you um, ready yourself to do so, let me clarify. Um, The Apostle Paul here is dealing correctively with an issue that was in the Corinthian church. And he spent chapter 12 leading into chapter 13, with the focus being on the body ministering one to another in love for the upbuilding and the edification of one another. And although there is diversity, we are united as one body and united in purpose. That through it, Christ would be glorified. And so in chapter 13, he then begins to define love in action. 
And so as we get into chapter 14 now, he's laid that foundation that love is the primary thing. And that all that, we're, that all that we do is to be motivated by love and based upon love. Love for God and love for his people. And so in verse 1 he says, pursue love. Because it is love that we are to chase after, to run after with effort and energy. And so now as he comes into chapter 14, he begins to bring clarity to an issue that he began in chapter 12 to talk about. And particularly in this chapter, he talks about two things. He talks about prophecy and he talks about speaking in tongues. Prophecy and speaking in tongues. And it seems that in many ways things don't change. They were, the, they were the, the main issues of concern for the Corinthian church. And they were the main issues that need to be, needed to be corrected among them. A people who were used to and were very expressive and open in the demonstration of their spirituality. And so he begins to bring some apostolic instruction as to all right, you guys are spiritual, but I don't want you to be ignorant of spirituality, 12 verse 1. Let's get this thing in place and in order. And so he now deals with prophecy and speaking in tongues in chapter 14. Now, our focus today, and time doesn't permit for us to look at the issue of speaking in tongues. And there is past teaching I've done on it. And so you can inquire at the table and we'll, we'll dig that out of the archives for you. Um, but our focus today is primarily and solely on the issue of prophecy. And so as we go through this chapter, as much as the Apostle Paul compares and contrasts, he compares and contrasts the difference of purpose and benefit of tongues and prophecy I'm not going to spend much time, if any, speaking about speaking in tongues. So we will focus on prophecy. I'll read through the whole chapter, and then we'll give our focus to um, 1 to 5, and then 21 to the end. I'll read through the whole chapter. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, 
unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So, likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? At your giving of thanks. Since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well. But the other is not edified. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than, all, more than you all. Yet in church. I would rather speak five words with my understanding. That I may teach others also. Than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren. Do not be children in understanding, however. In malice, be babes. But in understanding, be mature. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet, for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus, the secrets of his hearts are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue... Let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. That all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. 
For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it, to, was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is, in, is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Amen. So, Paul's bringing order. We hear that quite clearly in the conclusion. He makes reference to the tongues, to the fact that it's, it is a, a, a gift that is given to the church. It's to be expressed in the church, by the church. It is for unbelievers. It is not to be expressed all at once in our corporate gatherings, lest the unbeliever comes in and thinks we're out of our minds. If it's going to be expressed in a corporate gathering, it's going to be by one or two and with interpretation. If there's no interpretation, no tongues. We keep quiet. It says you exercise the gift to yourself and to the Lord. Prophecy, on the other hand, is a different matter. So let's unpack that. Prophecy. In what we've established so far, the thing that I most want to emphasize is that prophecy is based on scripture. It is the application of scripture it is primarily the application of scripture. Prediction is an aspect of prophecy, but it is a secondary aspect. Prophecy is not equal to scripture, but is submitted to scripture. Verse 29, the apostle Paul says that prophecy must be judged. If you have nothing to judge it against, how can you therefore judge what is true prophecy and what is not? We at this juncture in church history have a closed cannon. That's not a big gun with a cap on the end. But it's a, that, that which is recognized and was recognized by the early church fathers and in 393 in the Council of Hippo, it was done and dusted these books are scripture. The Old Testament was already established. This is the word of God. The divinely spoken word of God. And carries the authority of being God's word. And then throughout the New Testament era. Those writings which the Lord had purposed. And intended for us to recognize and accept it as scripture became identified. 
Now, we don't have time to go into the doctrine of Scripture and what is it that causes these books to be the case. I want to recommend a book to you if you want to look into these things further. It's a book by a guy called Wayne Grudem, and it's called Systematic Theology. And I warn you from the outset, you look at that book, you go to Wesley Owen, oh, you got Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. You will look at it and you will want to walk out of the shop. You would have wished that you carried your trolley to take the book home. It is so big. It looks like an exhaustive Oxford dictionary with thesaurus or thesaurus or however you say that word. That's how I always used to say it growing up. Theosaurus, you know, like some dinosaur. <laughs> a thesaurus. Yeah, it's, it's a chunky book. But at the same time, recognize that you're to use it like a dictionary. It's not bedtime reading. It's not the kind of thing you whip out on the tube on your way to work. I know some of you ladies got handbags big enough, but you put it on your shelf and you take it off and you look up the issues that you want clarity on. And it's helpful if you work through it. Because it provides a big picture and a comprehensive understanding of Christian doctrine. But it's well segmented. And so there is a chapter in there, chapter 3, which is the doctrine of scripture. And it unpacks how we arrived at having what we understand to be the canon of scripture today. Yet we know the apostles recognized that which we have. And the early church fathers recognized that which the apostles recognized. And so it was not just one guy who sat down one day and said, okay, we'll have that one, that one, and leave that one out. Um, it was something that was a, a collective, it was the result of a collective consciousness identifying that which God had truly said. And so in light of that, we have the Old and New Testament, which is the Word of God, not including the Apocrypha, um, as is found in certain other um, Bibles. That's the books in between the Old and New Testament. And these are the inspired scriptures. And so any prophecy that is shared is not equivalent to that today. There is no prophecy that is equal to scripture. There is no prophecy that adds to scripture or even adds new meaning to scripture. Not at all. Prophecy is submitted to and subservient to scripture. Um, if you were in community groups this week, you would have, you'd be familiar with these verses. If you weren't, take note of them and look them up. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 speaks about the fact that God in times past spoke through the prophets, but has now spoken through his son. And in the in original language, there's finality. God speaks today. Yes, he does. And the language is Jesus. And the message is Jesus. And the understanding is Jesus. All scripture testifies of Christ, it says in Luke 24. As he was on the road to Emmaus. Speaking to the guys of all that was written in the prophets concerning himself. And so, no prophecy 
that is in any way remotely inspired by the Lord's Spirit is going to be inconsistent with that. Another verse to write down, Revelation 19 verse 20. This is a banger. Very relevant. Part B of that verse, the conclusion of that verse says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And this was stated in the final section of the one of the last books to be added to the canon. Revelation 19.20. And so the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy. 2 Peter 1.19-21. I realize I made a typo this week on the things for you guys in your um, community groups trying to work out what I was referring to. Basically highlighting that no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. No prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. So I've got a revelation from the Lord that only I understand. And even though you don't get it, you've got to take my word for it. Even though it's inconsistent with what has been preached in the church throughout the history, it's it's a new revelation and I understand it and you'll get it if you actually listen carefully to me and buy my books. No, it's not of private interpretation. And we see even in Galatians 1 and 2 that Paul himself received the gospel from Jesus himself. And yet at the beginning of chapter 2 talks about the fact that he went up to Jerusalem to the leaders and presented it to them that he would not have proven to have run in vain. The apostle Paul met with the risen Lord personally. And so, God does speak today, but he ain't saying nothing new. So, the gift of prophecy for the church today. Now, in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul spoke about different types of gifts. 7 through to 11, talks about different types of gifts. Talks about word of wisdom, word of knowledge. It talks about miracles, healings, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, faith. These, these are things that he's outlined there. As well as in other places, in Romans he talks about gifts. And in Ephesians 4 he talks about gifts. Within those things that he listed in um, verses 7 to 11, he mentions the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. And he also mentions prophecy in verse 10. And we see that these are different things. Sometimes people confuse prophecy with the word of wisdom. A simple definition of the word of wisdom is an expression of practical wisdom inspired by God that the individual did not think of themselves. So you think about the life of Solomon. And at the beginning of his reign, he met with God. And God said to him, what shall I give you? And he said, Lord, give me wisdom to lead your people. And the Lord was like, hmm, okay then. Good answer. I'm going to give you wisdom. And even though you could have asked for riches and you could have asked for all these things, you know, I'm going to bless you with that as well. 
Solomon was blessed with wisdom. And one of the clearest and, and most decisive evidences of that was when the two ladies came. And one of, their laid, one of their babies, both of them were new mothers, and one of their babies had died during the night. And the one whose baby had died, she took her dead baby and swapped it with the other mother's baby. A bit like a scene from EastEnders, right? You wonder, where, you wonder where they get their script from. Swapped the living baby with the dead baby and was walking, parading with this baby as if it was her own. But unlike EastEnders, the other mother clocked on quick. And so the matter was brought before Solomon. And when the matter came before Solomon, it was like, I want my baby back. No, it's my baby. And Solomon's sitting there thinking, hmm, how am I going to be able to tell? I've never seen these babies before. And so, by the grace of the Lord, the empowering of the Lord, he says, all right, look, I'll tell you what, give me the baby that you got there. Give me the sword. Let's just cut this baby in half and you have half each. No, don't do it. You know what? Furthermore, let her have the baby. Ah, okay. Obviously, the baby's yours. See, she was willing for the baby to get chopped. But not you, because you genuinely care for the baby, because you know the baby's yours. Give the baby to this woman. Wisdom! Woo! My gosh! And we see there are oftentimes in the life of the church where there's a particular challenge, situation, or problem, particular conundrum, and the Lord will give a word of wisdom. And it's just so clearly the response to the situation, a practical outworking of wisdom inspired by the Spirit. So that's not prophecy. I'm the word of knowledge, information or understanding given by the Spirit that was not before known to the recipient, to the speaker. It's the word of knowledge. Again, that's not prophecy. We see Paul list these things in 1 Corinthians 12 with distinction. And so with that not being prophecy, we understand with greater clarity what prophecy is, the application of the word. We also recognize that prophecy is not teaching. Prophecy is not teaching. So even in the text that we have before us in 1 Corinthians 14, in verse 6, Paul says this, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by revelation by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Prophesying or by teaching. And so, a brief definition of the difference between the two is that prophecy is the application of the word. The word says this, and this is how it applies. This is how we ought to respond to it. Whereas teaching is the authoritative explanation of the word. The authoritative explanation of the word. Such as it shapes the definition of our beliefs. And what we understand to be Christian doctrine. Teaching might involve prophecy when that teaching is applied. But prophecy is not teaching.
So, that's the difference between word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and teaching in comparison to prophecy. Now, it's quite an important distinction to bear in mind because of what the Apostle Paul says in this chapter and other places with regards to teaching. If we don't understand the difference, we would say that the Apostle Paul is contradicting himself. Just flip the page over, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 11. And let's brief look at verse 5. In verse 5 of chapter 11, Paul speaks of the fact that women prophesy and pray publicly. Now, he speaks about it in an incidental way, addressing a different issue. This is not the heart of his issue, women praying and prophesying. He's talking about head coverings. And again, we don't have time to go into that, apart from to say he's bringing clarity to cultural practice. So some people will see me with a hat on, and I wore it intentionally today, and say, isn't that consistent with what the Bible says? A man shouldn't pray or prophesy with his head covered. Well, one of the reasons we know that it's culturally distinct is because there's no way that Paul would have gone into any congregation of the Jews as he did consistently and told them to take their head covering off. Because every man in every synagogue from the times of the Old Testament and the Levites ministered the word with their head covered. So that's just a a clue for you to work with as you deal with that in your own time. But the point is, what he does endorse is women praying and prophesying in public meetings. And so we see that women can prophesy. Women can prophesy. We recognize in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, that he puts a prohibition on women teaching in that authoritatively definitive sense. In fact, likewise in this chapter, as we'll examine a bit further later on, he puts a prohibition on women judging prophecy. Again, because it is authoritatively definitive. But that doesn't mean that women cannot engage in prophesying. And so it has to be different from teaching, right? We see this also endorsed in Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18, and you can make note of that for reference. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So you hear that? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams. And on my men's servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. Men's servants and maid servants. Men and women, sons and daughters. And so we see that there is an endorsement for women prophesying. And 
it does counter those who would like to say, Paul's a chauvinist. He's just disrespecting women. He needs to get with the times. That's why he said that women should not teach. Well, it's not why. But we do see that he encourages the vocal contribution of women within the church. And as much as that is actually necessary. And so ladies, be encouraged. I was smiling to myself at the back there as Pastor Rob um, encouraged the mums among us and read from Proverbs 31 and extolled the virtues of mums who are so faithful and just giving of themselves. And we praise God because in Ephesians 2, it talks about the fact that there is no distinction, male or female. In regards to salvation and relationship with God, there's no distinction. There used to be. The Old Testament temple used to have what was called the court of the women because that was as far as they could go. And so what we see Paul saying here about prophesying publicly and even um, you know, women engaging vocally is countercultural. Paul was far from a chauvinist. He was one who promoted women in a way that even the Jews found for him. And we thank the Lord. The differences are not due to greater value or importance. It's just due to a difference in role and difference in responsibilities. So women are able to prophesy. In verse 3 it says, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And we spoke about that. The, 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 the aim and the point is that people are built up, stirred up, and cheered up. That is the motive when it comes to prophecy. And that ought to be the outcome. You know what it's like in your jobs these days when everything's outcome-oriented. What are going to be the outcomes? You know, what are going to be the results from this? How are we going to measure the outcomes? Have you recorded your outcomes? And these are the outcomes when it comes to prophecy. Edify, exhort, comfort. Build up, stir up, and cheer up. Now, it says, he who prophesies. Let me just take a side note here. Does someone who prophesies therefore qualify to be a prophet? Does that now make them a prophet? So we say Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Do we say Ezekiel, Hosea, and Brother Tim? Prophets. Well, again, we get clarity from the word. Evidently, the answer is no. You can tell by the way I've asked the question. And Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So if the foundation's been laid and the church continues to be built, is the Lord going back to relay the foundation every generation? No, we recognize that the ministry of the apostles and prophets is absolutely unique. Put alongside the uniqueness of Christ as being the chief cornerstone, which together make up the foundation of the church. And so the foundation, having been laid, is not consistently relayed. And so there are no apostles or prophets in the way that there was once. There are no apostles and prophets in the way that there once was. And that's absolutely clear. The Lord has laid that foundation and does not relay it. Some people may look today and say, well, are there apostles and prophets today then? What about those people that call themselves prophets? Well, I would dare to say that half of them ain't. And if there are any among them that genuinely are used by God in a regular fashion to prophesy, they could only be considered a prophet with a lowercase p, if you wanted to make a distinction. They could only be considered a prophet with a lowercase p. Likewise, someone who's an apostle could only be called an apostle as having a lowercase a. The word apostle simply means specially sent messenger. The word prophet means one who speaks the word of God, speaks the mind of God. Now, the apostles, who were also regarded as prophets because they authored scripture, were a unique group who were appointed by Jesus himself. We see Timothy in scripture referred to as being an apostle, but he was an apostle of Paul. In that he was a specially sent messenger, but he wasn't sent by Jesus himself. He was sent by Paul. And so we would understand that as a lowercase a. But fundamentally, there is no one who has that office in the church today who is able to say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord is saying with absolute and categoric authority which must be obeyed and submitted to. And the unfortunate thing is there are many today who go on like that's their place. But it's not their place. And anyone who assumes that place immediately, you know, you know I, I don't have to even try and receive anything that you're saying. Because you don't even understand your place in the body of Christ and God's work in the church. You don't understand that. So how am I going to now receive from you as a great prophet? In 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10, it says this. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Paul himself included himself in that statement. We prophesy in part. Now, does that mean that, well, some of Paul's words were true and some of them weren't? No, it just means that he didn't have the whole picture. He didn't have the whole picture. And so God used Peter and God used James and God used Luke and God used other men in addition to that which he gave to Paul. And having done so, even as we rely upon their words, as we continue, as it says in Acts 2, in the apostles' doctrine, and we respond to that, especially how many, 2,000 years down the road, we see that we're even more limited. And our in part (laughs) is an even smaller part than theirs. So, prophecy. There's a difference between word of wisdom, knowledge, and teaching, and prophecy. This explains why women are able to engage in prophecy. A person who prophesies is not a prophet, in the sense that most people understand it. At that moment in time, You could call the person who engages in the act of prophesying a prophet, as Paul does in this text. But he's not speaking about it in an institutional sense, as them holding an office in the church as being a prophet, in the way that you'd have a pastor who continually walks in that office, or even an evangelist that walks in that office. They're not a prophet as in they walk in that office and everything they say, you've got to take it as gospel. Not at all. Now, who is prophecy for? Who is prophecy for? Paul answers this question very clearly from the text. And even as we look at it, it should cause us to wonder why is it even in recent years of, of church history, there are, uh, there are those who have sought to prophesy things to the nations. In verse 22, Paul clearly says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, prophecy is a sign for those who believe. In verse 4, he who prophesies edifies the church. Prophecy is for the church. Prophecy is not for the world. We see that it may have impact on the unbeliever, especially as they come amongst the church in verse 24, and they see prophecy shared and responded to in such a way that Their hearts are exposed. And they're convicted. 
and they fall on their face and they worship God saying, God is truly among you. So they observe God's presence being expressed among his people and in the observation of that, they're convicted. And as the word is applied openly and it's responded to, they're convicted in heart. And so we recognize that prophecy is by the church and for the church. And these are things to keep in mind because there have been those who wanted to give prophecies to governments. Apparently, I was speaking with someone during the week and they said, oh, you know, did you hear about the, um, the whale prophecy? I said, the whale prophecy? And they said, yeah, yeah, because what happened was there was a, a group of Christian leaders who prophesied that London needs to repent or, or judgment's going to come upon London and, it, and it's going to get flooded. And there was that time when, I don't know if you remember, not so long ago, when there was a whale that came up the Thames. And so they were like, you see, you see, it's coming. This is a sign that it's coming, that God's judgment is coming. And then the whale died. And so it was like, well, what happened to flooding and judgment? And like, what happened to your prophecy? Where was the fulfillment of it? And rather than just hold their hands up and say, you know what? Yeah, we missed it. Don't trust anything that we say again. <laughs> By way of prophecy. No, it was attempted to have been explained away. Well, obviously there was, you know, our prayers availed much and there was sufficient repentance for the Lord to avert judgment. And yet London is still as wicked and corrupt as it's ever been. You see, prophecies for the church. Prophecy may interact with unbelievers in as much as they interact with the church. But the church is always the focus of prophecy. We see this from the text here. Now, how does prophecy happen? Maybe you're at a point where you're thinking, okay, so... I'm accepting the idea that prophecy is for today. And I'm getting a little bit more clarity. I need to think, think over these things a bit more. But I need to get a little bit more clarity about, you know, just exactly what it is. But, like, how do you even kind of get involved in prophesying? Like, like, how does it happen? How does God express prophecy through his people? Well, as mentioned before. Preaching and teaching is one of the ways in which common, prophecy is commonly expressed within the church. Often people are waiting for a, a moving and a shaking and a whatever in a, in a kind of sensational build up and then a dust saith the Lord cry. But actually, if we had ears to hear, as Jesus often said to the people of his time, we would recognize that God by his spirit speaks to our hearts as his word is applied from the pulpit.
And sometimes we miss it because we're looking for something more than God is actually giving already. It's a bit like the person who was caught in a flood, metaphorically speaking, in this analogy, and they were in their house praying and believed that the Lord's going to deliver them and that the Lord was going to send a helicopter to deliver them. And the person came in a boat and they said, no, no, it's all right, the Lord's going to send a deliverer. Someone came on a canoe and it was like, no, 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 it's all right, the Lord's going to send a deliverer. And the flood got higher. And they stayed in the house and they died. Quite frankly. They stayed there and they died. The Lord sent them deliverance. (laughs) But they was expecting it in some other way. They was expecting it in, in their preferred way. And sometimes the Lord speaks to us concerning our situations. And he speaks to us. Even in conversation, someone says something and it penetrates our hearts. But we don't recognize and accept it as being the Lord speaking to us. Maybe because we're looking for something more. We're looking for the presence of the Lord in the atmosphere and the band to be playing emotionally and and we're all charged and... We see that the Lord from the Old Testament uses music in prophecy. He doesn't abuse and overuse it. But that isn't, he's not limited to that. He's not limited to that. And so then the challenge is upon us as to having ears to hear so that we would engage with prophecy as it comes across the pulpit or it even comes in conversation. Sometimes it's in prayer. Somebody just wants to encourage. Somebody just wants to. I was at the wedding yesterday and a brother, I was talking with a brother, I haven't seen him for a minute, and he was like, Can I pray with you? And I was encouraged. Right, you know, we never came here for this. Praise God. And he prayed for me. And I felt like the brother prayed some things that he evidently had no idea about. And he prayed specific things from the scripture that made sense to where I'm at at this moment in time and I thank the Lord for the way in which he spoke to me and encouraged my heart comforted comforted and strengthened me through that prayer which was prophetic now I use the word prophetic and automatically it's almost like it elevates it to another level of prayer prophetic prayer when you pray do you pray prophetic prayer The Holy Spirit is resident within his people. And as we seek to bless and encourage one another, he works through us. Often when we don't even realize we're being used in that way. And that's nothing new, even the Old Testament prophets. Peter said the Old Testament prophets prophesied not knowing what time that they spoke of. And earnestly desired looking into into what time it might be. They didn't fully understand. They prophesied of a a coming king who would be a conqueror. And yet they prophesied of of a king who would be a suffering servant. And they didn't get the picture. 
And we know they didn't get the picture. The disciples who walked with Jesus didn't get the picture. Because they thought that he was the conquering king but didn't expect him to be the suffering servant. And so the person prophesying doesn't always know that they're prophesying. Preaching and teaching, prayer, conversation. Quote, unquote, everyday ways in which the Lord speaks specifically to us and applies his word to our hearts. We also see, as we read in Acts 2, that the Lord may use visions or dreams. And again, it's consistent with what he's done in times past. People like Daniel, Joseph, so on. Where God may speak through a vision or a dream. Now, what's the difference between a vision and a dream? Well, you have a dream when you're sleeping. You have a vision when you're awake. But it's basically the same thing. You could say that um, a vision is a daydream. Have you ever had those moments? (laughs) I wouldn't ask you when or where. Half of you probably sitting at work. And your mind just goes off somewhere else. And you may see with clarity a picture in your mind's eye. And one of the sisters a couple weeks back at the community group just shared a beautiful vision that she had. Um, I was going to say I, Justina. We call her Auntie J. Is she here? Oh, that's good. She's not going to feel hot then. All right. She shared a vision that she had once about uh, a plant, say like a yucca plant with the spiky leaves. And the plant was trying to dodge being cut and trimmed. And the cutter was able to cut one of the, the leaves on the plant. Even though it was trying to dodge and avoid the cutting. And when that, after that leaf was cut, it grew back greener and richer than it was before. And so, immediately, what scripture comes to mind? Anyone? Vine and the vine dresser. John 15. And it says, I prune the branches that they would bear more fruit. And so, what was the message from that vision? Don't dodge pruning. (laughs) simple things don't dodge pruning you might not want to get the chop but you're going to be better for it and so right there we see uh, a a, a word picture if you like an, an illustration a vision depicting the practical application of the scripture now From the text, we see that prophecy is something that we're to be intentional about. Prophecy is something we're we're to be intentional about. So, in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. So, speak. We're to be intentional about it. We're to recognize and give place to it. 
But that doesn't mean that it's every occasion that we meet together as the church. There are some settings where that may not be practical. And we see in 1 Timothy 4, again, Paul speaking to Timothy as a young leader. We see the fact that in verse 13, he says, all right, Timothy, be given to reading. That means the public reading of scripture, exhortation and doctrine. In the very next verse, he talks about prophecy in relation to prophecy that Timothy had received. But we don't see Paul encouraging Timothy, okay, I make sure you give place to prophecy uh, amongst the saints every time you meet together. And so let's keep in mind the whole scope of scripture. Let's keep in mind the whole scope of the New Testament. And let's not overemphasize something that the Bible does not emphasize. For so many people, in so many ways, they find themselves in a place where they just seek to rely on receiving a word from the Lord. I've got to just get that word from the Lord. Oh, I need some guidance. I need that word from the Lord. I need some encouragement. I need that word from the Lord. And they will even come within the vicinity of teaching and in in the teaching environment and hear the word shared and still leave feeling as though I didn't get that word from the Lord. That's putting more emphasis on something than it ought to have. Prophecy is not meant to be overemphasized in that way. And so, we're to be intentional and we're to be orderly. Verse 40 is a summary of the whole thing, decently and in order. And in verse 29 to 32, he breaks down the order, the way in which it should be done orderly when believers gather together to encourage one another in this way. Two or three at the most, verse 29, one by one. One at a time. Everyone all talking at once. And again, you might think, well, that wouldn't even make sense, everyone talking at once. But if you reflect back on my illustration last week of my experience growing up, it wasn't uncommon and it's not uncommon today. That ain't how it's supposed to be done. One at a time, decently and in order. And verse 32 makes it clear the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And so, therefore, there ain't no need to be getting out of control. Unnecessary. So, finally, to focus in closing on weighing scripture. Weighing scripture. Judging prophecy. Let me say that, sorry. When prophecy is shared, it's supposed to be judged, verse 29. Let me give you five points for judging prophecy in general and then close with just a couple of issues with regards to personal prophecies and predictions. First one, keep in mind the point of the gifts. The point of the gifts is love for God, to motivate love for God and his people, that his people would be blessed. Encouraged, strengthened, comforted. Even if it's a rebuke, that's 
should still be the result. That should still be the outcome. Someone is encouraged to live better than they were, if that's necessary. Two, Christ and him crucified. Is it cross-centered? Is it gospel-centered? Is it consistent with God's revelation of himself in the person of Christ? Three, encourage, strengthen, and comfort. I say it again, because in verse three, Paul makes it absolutely clear. That's what prophecy is about. Four, we see from verse 33 that God is not the author of what? God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And so as we judge prophecy, is this something that is bringing confusion? Because if it is, then you know what? We need to just put that aside. It may bring confusion for different reasons. Maybe it wasn't shared clearly and it needs to be judged more thoroughly. Maybe clarification is needed. But ultimately, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And remember what we said last time, if it's new, it ain't true. And so it's going to be consistent with what God has said in his word. And if it's a personal issue, it's going to be consistent with what the Lord's already been saying to your heart. It's only going to be a confirmation, not a revelation. And the fifth point. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. It ought not to be something that causes us to live in fear. Now, I don't mean the fear of God or reverence for God, because that's a different thing. But it's not something that ought, us, ought to cause us to, you know, be scared to go out of our door, scared to come to church, scared to read the Bible. You know, we shouldn't be experiencing fear in any way regard to prophecy. So there's five things there. What's the point of the gifts? Is that consistent? Christ and him crucified. Is it cross-centered? Does it encourage, strengthen, and comfort? Does it bring confusion? Does it cause fear? Now, in a corporate setting, it says that Prophecies to be judged. It says that women are not to engage in that process. Paul's already established that there are elders in the church. And so the primary responsibility would fall to them, although we are all to be individual Bereans who judge prophecy. But what about when it comes to personal issues? Someone says to you, well, I've got a word from the Lord. I've got a word from the Lord for you. You know, you're, you're to... <laughs> I gave the example um, at community group. Go on eHarmony and find a husband. Join Match.com and find a wife. You're to leave your job. 
move home and go to Mongolia as a missionary. Well, in addition to the points that have already been mentioned, there's an additional point of judging prophecy that I would strongly emphasize. Somebody says they've got a word from the Lord for you. Two things, actually. On what biblical basis? On what biblical basis do you bring this word for the Lord from the Lord for me? Because in us judging prophecy, we've got to measure it against the Bible, right? That means the person bringing prophecy, prophecy should also be able to give some sense in which this makes sense in light of scripture. So put the work on them. On what biblical basis do you bring this word from the Lord for me? You might also want to consider their testimony and their track record whilst you're at it. But also, most importantly, is counsel. Get counsel. Somebody brings a word from the Lord for you. Don't feel that it's something that you need to keep to yourself. Sit down like Mary, keeping all these things in your heart. Meditating on it. Meditate on it, maybe. Judge it, definitely. But Proverbs makes it clear. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counsels, there's safety. Without counsel, plans go amiss. Go astray. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. For by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Three different verses from Proverbs. So go to someone who is mature in the faith. Speak to them. And allow them to join with you in judging that prophecy as it relates to your life. God desires that his presence be evidenced among us. And one of the ways is through the gift of prophecy being shared. And we know this results in God's evidence presence among us because of the way that an unbeliever who comes among us will respond when they see that at work. This is not the only means by which God's presence is evidenced among us. In fact, Jesus said, above all things, all men will know you're my disciples by what? Your love. Hold on, that ain't the end of it. Your love for one another. Sometimes we as believers, we got more love for the world than we have for one another. It's not right. By your love for one another. So that's got to be the most clear, distinctive that defines us as Christians. And God's presence among us. And yet we see prophecy is something by which the Lord does want to bless the church and through which the church is able to be blessed as we minister to one another. And so quite simply, as we keep that motive in heart of wanting to bless one another, encourage one another with the word, pray for one another, then it will flow. Yeah, it'd be supernatural, but it will be just that, supernatural. It will flow by reason of God's presence in us And there are many of us who have experienced that. Some of you would testify to the fact that, you know, even as you come on a Sunday, you've heard the Lord pinpoint things in your life. 
pinpoint things in your heart. I've always rejoiced with a jealousy at the women as they've gone away on um, women's retreat. How many of you ladies have been away on a women's retreat? All right, so you know what I'm saying. Go away on a women's retreat and you have that time of ministry one to another. And you, you just, you come back soaked. And so it's something that we as a congregation here will grow in. And, you know, we talked about having the fellowship nights which are to come. Koinonia nights where we'll be able to just have time and space to be able to minister to one another. Sundays aren't always practical like that. There will be occasions when we're able to engage in that on a Sunday. In our community groups and prayer meetings... We need to see this come become a, a normal part of our culture as a church. The way in which we relate to one another and the way in which we outwork our salvation one among another. And just like anything that's maybe new, we take tentative steps as we grow and allow the Lord to strengthen us and lead us in his will. Amen.